<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! So one of my best friends from like the age of five happens to be one of only like four or five board certified pediatric neuropsychiatrists in the tri-state area. But I met one other of these sacred four people in the tri-state area, and she's here today. Dr. Sejal Vias is the founder and president of the Center for Cognition, Emotion, and Behavior. Her specialty is in the mental health of children, mostly in schools, and she uses, wait, syllable alert, neurolinguistic programming therapy to help her patients with trauma. The CDC released a report about her work earlier this year, and she's presently conducting listening sessions here in the city, leading up to a New York State summit on youth mental health and wellness later this year. Look, I've got twin 13-year-olds now. This hits home, this matters to me, and I believe it's gonna matter to you. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sejal Vias. Dr. Vias, <laughs> you're here. Welcome to the Man Cave. Thank you. This has been great. It's a pleasure to have you here. For the listener's sake, we've met a while ago. We, um, I think we enjoyed each other's company at the conference table, opining on uh, Jews and Indians and our common cultural threads of guilt and food. Yes. <laughs> is that fair? Yes, that is fair. <laughs> exactly. I have um, a really strong affinity for when I have medical professionals on the show that are relevant to what's lurking under my hood. <laughs> but you clean up nice, just don't look under the hood. And, you know, neuropsych is something near and dear to me because I've been through it, but also my best friend in the entire world that I met when I was three is a board-certified pediatric neuropsych here in the city. Wow. And I know you're few and far between. Yes, we are. There are not many of you. Yes. And I didn't know that. Why didn't I know this? I, maybe I didn't tell you. <laughs> Come on. Where's your ESP? <laughs> Get out of here. No one wants you anymore. So he was with me all through grade school, middle school, high school. You know, he was there when I was sick, came to the hospital. We're still best friends. He was the best man at my wedding. You know, he's reading at my kids' B'nai Mitzvah coming up, which will probably be over by the time this, this airs. But, you know, my best friend, Phil. And the running joke was like, hey, I can test you for shits and giggles. Come on in. So every now and then he he's probably indiscriminately not supposed to be doing this. But it's like, all right, on, on the on the, the spinal tap scale of, you know, zero to 11, where am I? He's like, I'm not telling you. Oh, gosh. Yeah. How did you what did you think of the tests? I was fascinated. And I remember having it very early on on purpose because they wanted to make sure that all this Chernobyl level 
radiation, you know, solar exposure was not going to ruin too many things for me. And fortunately, in some, this is kind of a, a weird thing for an oncologist to say. He's like, eh, you got IQ to spare. Uh, Would yes. you say that to a patient? Well, I'd say you have tremendous cognitive reserve. And so you might lose some capacity, but you, we have a great prognosis that you're going to be able to recover some functioning and that synaptic plasticity will kick in. And, and, and that's where neuropsychologists come in because we're the coaches who are going to see you run on the field or do mental games. And then we're going to design a rehab program for you. The one thing that gave me validation was to understand that the cognitive deficits I have in executive function are mostly in word recall, which you get older, it's there anyway. So I have no excuse anymore at 48 years old. <laughs> but also I've lost the ability to have facial recognition. Interesting. And that was fascinating because I always felt I had to apologize for not remembering people I met the day before. Mm. And it was a combination of you know short-term memory loss, which I definitely have. That's been quantified for 25 years. And this neurological, you know, deficit in facial recognition, which you might think is like people can forget people. And I meet a lot of people. But what's your experience in that one specific thing? Like where does facial recognition live in the ether of, of outcomes and causes? Yeah, I mean, look, I've had uh, several patients with right frontal lobe injuries who have then um, struggled with that unbeknownst to them. And it, what the struggle, I think, has been is when it's not identified, it causes a lot of interpersonal difficulties, as you can imagine. And most importantly, though, once we identify what it is, to be able to tell individuals, this isn't you being a, a mean person or someone who doesn't care. In fact, most of the people I've worked with care deeply. And so it's just... It's, it's a relief to the system, the family system, the people you're going to encounter to just say, this is part of my profile. And by the way, I have tremendous cognitive reserve. And so I can get on a podcast right. and kick butt. But this is a part, like everybody, we have some vulnerabilities. But that, I think when there's a medical change and that hits someone, it really goes under the radar. And then it starts to produce all these kinds of other emotional sequelae that then end up snowballing into something bigger. Well, it also is kind of the umbrella, you know, of the tent of other potential stressors and insecurities you can have because you you feel broken because you know you're broken, but you didn't ask for this, it's causal, but yet you somehow, like anything else, people don't know this, it's invisible. And it can be embarrassing and it can be a little shameful and like, what's the matter with you? You I read you an hour ago. Like, how do you manage that is also part of the therapy that comes along with it, right? hundred percent. And and what's so interesting is that people that have the most cognitive reserve are almost more aware of the deficit and the change. And to just be able to say, look, this happens to everyone. This can happen to you even without a brain injury or some kind of tremendous brain tumor. And and to, to be able to give some uh, strategies on how to deal with it. And, and the system is so important your family members, your loved ones to be included and so that you can practice it and really master, you know, the, the, the difficulty. It's real important. I mean, do little girls wake up and say, I can't wait to be a neuropsych one day? Where did that come from? 
Well, I did. No. <laughs> oh, you were the one. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, well, you know, I, I, I think it's the wave of the future. I strongly believe this is where psychology is headed. I do believe that there's a great integration, as you know, personally, in 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 medicine as well. We're just beginning to understand the tip of the iceberg. And part of my initiative and mission currently is to educate the public on. How do you know what's going on in your brain? People are so acutely aware what is going on in their body, but not as aware of what's going on mentally or it gets misattributed. And so part of my mission right now is to try to teach young people what is anxiety, depression, how do, how do we overcome it? What are some strategies that we can use? Because the early identification is the key. I had someone on the show a couple of weeks ago and I'm sure that show will have aired by the time this airs. And it was a neurologist who is working in like brain magnetic implants. And like, like this is like Star Trek stuff. Like you get a little RC control pad, like an iPad controls your mood. And they, it's like you do this live open brain test with wires in your head. And they're almost like curing you in a sense of these chemical changes that you're born with but in a sense do you deal with or maybe it's both induced trauma or congenital trauma uh, both for sure anything that afflicts the central nervous system the brain in particular so it it will be that wide range of you know neurodevelopmental or con congenital problems and then acquired brain injury you know sometimes folks aren't even aware that things have changed and so my regular practice is try to really rule out any of the medical uh, problems alongside other physicians where appropriate we would refer. And then doing my thing, which is really checking out under the hood, the, the cognitive, the emotional aspects. And then if there's anything else, developmental, academically, uh, et cetera. So my mother was telling me that, like, I think her uncle, or maybe it was my dad, his uncle growing up, uh, shared a story that in the 1940s in school, uh, some of the kids that were misbehaved got to go up on the roof for fresh air therapy. That was mm -hmm. how they dealt with like precocious children, like go up on the roof, be by yourself or the dunce cap. Right. And we've evolved quite effectively over the last couple of years where, you know, get over it therapy and walk it off therapy, which is what I think we grew up with. Like, just, yeah. what's wrong with you? Right. There are people that are way worse than you that aren't you. Like, stop thinking that way. You know, you've been in practice a very long time. You're you're my age. We're, we're Gen Xers. What's your perspective on societal progress and acceptance and tolerance of this? Is not a weakness, but an opportunity? Yeah. Look, I think as we've understood the brain more, there has been greater advancement in all of those domains. You know, I remember as a kid, corporal punishment was something that would be experienced in, say, Catholic school. And I went to Catholic school in India, and so you experienced it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what I've realized is that eradicating that and bringing in some of these behavioral techniques, techniques you can teach classroom teachers, techniques you can teach parents um, to deal more effectively with children who have these neurodevelopmental syndromes, ADHD in particular, maybe autism, high-functioning autism, what used to be Asperger's. So, so now we're in, we have toolboxes ready to go. I think the missing link is really now integrating the individual in that system. So not forgetting you're not just the diagnosis, you're also somebody with a soul who has passions. 
and and really maybe building that in. And again, that's my initiative. Something I'm you know wanting to to work on is to not see people as labels. Well, it, it speaks to. I mean, I'm I'm seeing a parallel at least in you know, maybe the part of my head where the tumor used to be. It has an it's an imagination <laughs> to itself that cancer treatments and medical treatments used to be like one size fits all. Yes. And now they're individualized in a wonderful way, but it really does beget the idea of it's about the human first, it's the individual first, not the body part or the geography of where things are happening. How do you square that circle? Because progress is great, but progress clearly reveals an ebb tide of how do we solve these better problems to have. Look, I think that this is not a new problem. It's been there for centuries and thousands of years ago. I think in the, in the past, before science and technology was as, as advanced as it is, people thought of it in more spiritual or religious terms. You know, when you look at Eastern religions or philosophies, they've addressed the notion of the soul and energies and things that quite frankly, quantum physics is now discovering in outer space. And so I think now it's time for us to pause as a community of scientists and, and, and patients and try to take stock of this is what I'm dealing with, but let me not forget about who I am in this ecosystem and how I can impact other people in my ecosystem just like galaxies impact each other with their energies. And and knowing that is something that is sort of determined at birth as well. And 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 the beauty of it, which I think is sometimes missed when we're looking at folks in terms of weaknesses and and not acknowledging all of the strengths that 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 people have, no matter what your di- diagnostic group is or what you've gone through medically. Well Carl Sagan was right. We're all made of star stuff. Yes. <laughs> And again, I'm, I've been very vocal about my dogma with things that are just so existential, you can't possibly wrap your head around them, literally can't wrap your head around them. Yeah. But anthropologically speaking, you mentioned the human condition has been what it is since we were a species. And there are always going to be sort of a systemic influencers in society and culture that preempt or prompt the way in which we are neurologically diverse. But the information age, what we've come to witness over 30 years, have we as a species exceeded their capacity to ingest information? And is that inductive of this broader, we're all just batshit crazy because of everything's 10 seconds long? You know, it's something I think we talked about when I first met you as well. Look, what we know about brain adaptability, right, is that we will progress over time. Our brains will change to try to adapt to what's in our environment. I think the question is, are we adapting in a functional way? Are we adapting in a way that is going to further our species rather than stop us in the tracks in some way? And and part of my initiatives and 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 you know this book that I want to get out is really going to be to to teach people how do you how to stop, how to stop and take in who we are at the most basic level, what our species did thousands of years ago and continue to do. I, I think the advancements are great. We've we've learned so much medically, even, you know, in, in neurology, neurosurgery, it's helped all of us so tremendously. So I, I would not want to see a, a cessation of that growth, but just more, how can we cope with that in our daily lives? Well, I'll give a quick Gen X level setting thing here for anyone listening that's in the Gen X space. So we all see how frenetic media is today, our kids, iPads and, and seven second what TikToks and whatnot. 
try to find the very first episode of Sesame Street from like 1968, 69. Everyone was obviously stoned when they wrote it. These poor teachers were just so stoned. But it's unwatchable, even by our tolerance standards of 80s television, because it's just so slow. But it was brilliantly written. But at the time, this was the digestibility of what we expected in children's television. And even though we had Sesame Street in the 80s, it had been a little punched up, a little more sassified, if I could make a word up here. Mm -hmm. But the whole point I want to make is that, yes, society is moving more quickly, but are we building a more chemically imbalanced digestion of information that is offsetting what might already be there congenitally or induced? Yeah, I mean, look, I think your 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 speculation is probably very correct. You know, uh, I... I, I especially in the group of people that are afflicted neurodevelopmentally or have had some brain trauma, I, I think they're particularly susceptible to overindulging in media or, or, or wanting the snippets. I think awareness is the key. And, the, and that's part of my uh, you know initiative. If you are aware that you have that susceptibility or that we need to get you out of that and you can't spend six or seven hours a day solely ingesting that, I think we will be able to better control that. But I think you're absolutely right. I love the 80s movies. I love how slow it is. But, you know, that would be a great tool perhaps to teach young people the art of patience. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and be right back after these words from Steven Spielberg's Goonies. Gremlins or E.T.? You pick. (laughs) Goonies. Done. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. you have kids? No. All right. I I referenced that because you mentioned, can we get today's generation to, in other words, defreneticize their intake of media and actually sit through close encounters of the third kind? And I have personally been, I've been sharing this with my friends as well with kids, you know, in their single digits and early teens. Is it possible 
that they would appreciate content from when we happened to grow up. That is a, a very different cadence. If you watch All in the Family, mm-hmm. it's like watching a Broadway show. There's no cuts. It's on stage. And you're not getting a laugh every 10 seconds like every other TV show these days. If you watch E.T., it's very slow. Mm-hmm. Goonies, by comparison, is awesome but slow. And yet, I will give credit where credit is due to myself, just for this perfect <laughs> just for the purpose of this conversation, my daughter's favorite movie is Goonies. Wow. Well, so everyone listening with kids, if you can get your kid to appreciate Goonies, that is a massive parenting success. I would agree 100%. And although I'm not a parent currently, I've been working with families and children for decades. And, and, and part of my job is really how do you nurture the developing brain and give it enough rest and, and uh, nurturance for it to develop optimally. And it's sort of a focus, I think, of any neuropsychologist. But I think to your point, slowing down the volume, slowing down the pace of life is so important. We know it when kids can rest and even adults, frankly, is when creativity happens, when we can think about ourselves and sort of our identity, et cetera. I think that has been missing in Western society, the art of relaxing without devices and other things. So let's talk about this book you're working on. Tell us about it. Yeah, so I'm I'm working on uh, merging uh, current science, physical sciences, neuropsychology, obviously, with uh, uh, quantum uh, principles, as well as uh, pulling in what we've known for centuries. So you know, uh, Eastern uh, philosophies. And who's the audience? Who who would you hope would read this book? You know, people who are functioning fairly well. Or maybe not even. Wait, have you met Jewish people? <laughs> Fairly well, well is an target. asterisk right there. <laughs> that's my target. But you know, in order to understand your 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 yourself better, uh, to to begin to gain momentum into optimizing who you are and what you're doing in the world today. All right, so let's get into some uh, some syllables here mm-hmm. for the, for the sake of the listeners. Neuro linguistic programming. Yes. What is that? What's the wiki on that? That is such a broad area. So neuro-linguistic programming, I'm not even sure how to tap that or how to address it in this podcast. Did I just break you? I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, you. You. I think you might have. Uh, but, but look, neuro-linguistics has been a field that's been there for decades, you know, several decades, in fact. And it is now the, the one area that I think is is underlooked in terms, in addition to cognition, by the way, that co-occur with tons of mental health disorders, but neurolinguistics is so tied to emotional functioning and cognitive functioning. And I, I believe not many people are getting the, the access to care they need, not only with mental health, but also in terms of linguistics or speech. Yeah. So you're in pediatrics largely, right? Largely, but adults as, as well. My first half of the career was mainly adults, and the second half is is children, adolescents, and adults as well. Mm-hmm. Are there any specific trends, disturbing or positive, that you could point to about how this new generation is processing growth and information and, and cognition? 
you know, look, that's a, a huge question. But I keep breaking what, you. I'm sorry. What I can, what I can speculate, on, what I can present to you, and, and again, my practice is all evidence based, so that's what I stick by. I look at what the literature is saying. What we know is, in the past ten years, the CDC came out with the youth behavior risk uh, rating scales, and what they found is over a ten year period, from 2011 to 2022. Rates of sadness and hopelessness increased, suicidality, suicide attempts in our youth, uh, with females outpacing the males in an almost two-to-one ratio. So the indicators currently are suggesting that the youth are experiencing a, a, a lot of mental health problems, namely anxiety, depression, suicidality, and the rates are increasing rather than decreasing. So part of what I'm thinking about and part of my initiative is how do I we identify these groups so that we can provide more targeted treatments so that we're not going to have sequelae later on. We know there's comorbid or co-occurring conditions that affect you physically, neurocognitively. Can we intercept it just much as we would if you had high blood pressure and the doctor would say that you are suffering with high blood pressure, maybe you should change your diet or your lifestyle. That That's, I think we need to take a step back with all the advancements we've made. We we need to make it more simple. One could argue, and I'm saying this on purpose, that we had different equal stress. We were bullied. We were embarrassed. We were humiliated in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, whatever it was, but there was no internet. Is that a known or being currently being discovered area of understanding? Is that a causal root of this increase or has it always been there? Is there some catalyst perhaps that has accelerated this where we had different problems to have in the 80s? I like that expression, by the way. You know, I was beat up and humiliated a million times and I walked it off, but I'm not saying that that is the way we think about it today because it's a different culture and different society. Yes. I, look, I, I, I was bullied as well, humiliated as well, and we had to recover secretly. Uh, you know, we we might talk about a parent or to a friend who witnessed the yeah. incident maybe, and we sort of figured out a way how to navigate it. And at the tail end of it, we came out feeling stronger. Um, you know, my in my experience in schools currently, What's happening is, is you know, there's an emphasis on trying to control the bully, but that's almost futile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, uh, to your point, the internet is exacerbating things. I don't think that's the sole cause for the increase in the rates. I do think the pandemic definitely is sure. is one of the causal factors. But wait, wait, hang on. But was this trending prior to the pandemic? We know the pandemic obviously was an accelerant for that. Yes. So that's a great question. I mean, it looks like that when you look at the figures that there's a great spike. So whatever trends there were pre-existing, it has now sort of accelerated after the pandemic. And, you know, and now there's uh, studies coming out that there's, uh, you know, loss of academic skills, particularly in math, et cetera. So, so what we know is we have to recover from that. And, and to, to go back to your original question about the bullying and, and the internet, uh, the controls on it. Um, um, how do we control a society when you can 
put bullying on media and and send it to a hundred people before it used to just be you and a and the six of, kids in the play yard. Yes, <laughs> yes. And but you know, I I don't know if it changes the experience in the individual. I think I think it might. You know, imagine how overwhelming it is if we did something embarrassing in front of an audience of five or six versus a hundred or fifty or your entire class. So I do think that that is something that we should look at as a society. Is it fair to consider the fact that it's a vulnerable period of time in their lives in general? And this is just layers of baklava on top of that. That's a great way to put it. I mean, baklava is a good thing to have. Like, yeah. I don't know what other layers would be bad. Yes. And, you know, I, I struggle, I mean, personally, when when I'm looking at how society is figuring out new ways to deal with things like bullying and, to your point, how we dealt with it as as young people and have things changed. The advice you would have gotten from your parent is either ignore or fight back, right? Ignore or fight back. Now there's great systems in place to try to address it, but it's almost in, in I'd say maybe 50 or 60% of the kids that I work with that are being bullied, a lot of them keep, still keep it to themselves. They're not running to mom or dad to tell them necessarily. So just, I keep, everything's 80s for me at this point now. I had um, a dream one night that my Ronald McDonald doll was coming to kill me. <laughs> it must have been like eight years old or whatever. By the way, I found that doll on eBay and it still scares the crap out of me. <laughs> it's like one of those like clowns in the in the horror movies. But I woke up and my father came in. I will never forget this. And he said, if, if he comes to get you again, you give him a knuckle sandwich. Like be violent and punch back. Like I don't think we can do that today or get away with that today. In terms of advising your children to fight back? Yes. Yes. Or what does that mean? What do those words even mean today then? Yeah. I mean, look, m my parents always said, you know, you want to protect your brain, interestingly, when I was a yeah. kid. So if someone bigger than you is going to try to do a physical fight, you either want to run and get away. And, and, and that was basically it. Figure out a way to use the best weapon you can, which is your your mouth. <laughs> Yes. And 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 then run, run like the wind. So I, I, I think that we can teach people more sophisticated ways and they don't have to be so drastically different than what we grew up with. But it maybe has a little bit more of a nuance that is more sophisticated today than it was when we were younger, where, you know, you had to fight physically to survive in, 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 in a way, especially when you were a boy. They were quite physical, and and I, I grew up with a younger brother who was a year and a half younger than me, so I witnessed lots Wait, of Wait, did you dress him up as a girl when he was like three and you were six? <laughs> no, but I did play house with him, and I did force myself to um, play with the boys uh, because they were just so interesting in their rough-and-tumble play. It was just <laughs> so interesting. But they also got physically violent with each other. Sure. Um, yeah. So- as of this recording, the governor of New York is passing a billion-dollar package of support for youth mental health issues. It sounds like just syllables on a page, and I can only imagine that, especially in New York where there's 30,000 different cultures of children, you, there is no one-size-fits-all. The Caucasian family versus the Pakistani family versus the uh, Orthodox Jewish family versus the African-American versus the poor family. And the, how is it going to be possible to skin this cat? in ways that are meaningful and measurable, in your opinion. Yeah, I mean, look, as I mentioned, I uh, have this initiative where I've come up with a questionnaire that taps the top leading uh, mental health conditions, uh, neurocognitive and mental health, 
to use it as a public health model. So we screen folks in all demographics, and then we institute evidence-based interventions for that. The condition of the human mind and emotions, I would argue, is the same, no matter what your ethnicity is or what culture you're, you're growing up in. And so I think that there's a commonality so I do think that is a good thing that we're get, having attention paid to it. We're responding to the CDC numbers. We're responding to all of the research that's saying youth are at risk currently, which I think is great. But now what we have to do is get people who are knowledgeable to design the interventions, get people activated and participating in that process. So what can, I, I would imagine, parents or kids expect from this intake survey? What kind of questions are in there? Oh, in mine? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basic questions that you, that are on any youth survey, but this is way briefer. And this, the way that I've designed it is any parent can look at it and interpret it. Any doctor, any school teacher. A lot of the screening questionnaires that we have that I actually give as a neuropsychologist require licensure to interpret it, score it, et cetera. This is designed for any parent, any teacher to look at, to be able to say, this looks like a problem, let's let's activate a, a stepwise plan, inform parents, inform the child, and let's go through a, a hierarchy, just like you would if you had high blood pressure and you'd walk into a doctor's office. There's a hierarchy of what they implement in terms of intervention. So another armchair question in a sense, um, what does success look like? I hate that question, but is it possible to get kids to use devices less? And if so, does that benefit them? It seems obvious it might, but what are some of the tactics and tools that are being implemented that you've seen progress on? Yeah, you, know, you look, look, this is part of, of, of what I do in terms of rehabilitation. And one of it is really balance in life. And so if one figuring out is your child on devices too much? And what does that mean for that particular youngster? Are they being physically active? Are they being mentally challenged? Are we putting a plan in if there's weaknesses for them? And so to get them off devices, if it is unhealthy and, and, and sort of uh, producing more problems, one thing that I would really advise is to get your child evaluated to make sure there's nothing underlying that that we're missing, namely any of the neurodevelopmental conditions or other conditions, that that the the, the use of internet is really masking. I mean, I would imagine there's probably some good content that could be binging on that isn't as bad as bad content. But who's the arbiter of that content? Co correct. And and as a parent, um, you know, do you have the time to to even review what your child is looking at, never mind participate in your day and all the other responsibilities that you have? So I think that that's a great question. Now we have to begin to rely on trusting our children and, and really developing that trust. I know you mentioned with your children, there's a trust that's developed in terms of what they're going to look at when they're getting access to the internet. And I think that that is so very important to develop. Just like in the 80s, you would go to your friend's house and your parents would trust that you were walking around the block to your friends and not going somewhere to, to do something that you weren't supposed to. So this show is not sponsored by a company named Eero, but I'm going to share with you just a little life hack I built in my family that I borrowed from another friend's family. This is a home router system that connects to your what your your Wi-Fi box or whatever. 
And it has an app on the phone that lists all the devices that happen to be on your home Wi-Fi network. And it lets you identify very specific devices, group them, and shut them off with one button. So you're able to turn off the internet on any one specific device. So my kids have these many devices. It's in his group. It's in her group. And if they don't behave, I hit the button, and they have no internet for the rest (laughs) of the day. It's a fabulous, wonderful, threatening deterrent. Because that's what we've had to figure out to use. We're going out for a walk. I'm turning off your internet. Mm. Because if we don't, they won't do it unless we intervene. Right. I guess that's maybe something we figured out because they know that I check their browser history. I don't use one of those nanny apps that lots of people do because I've grown to trust them. And I've said to them, you know, if I catch you doing anything, that's not okay. You know, it's like go to your room, no television. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Look, I think that that's great. I think as your kids get older, what would be great is to teach them the art of pacing, rewarding that they're able to step away from the device and go for a walk and rewarding, you know, like sometimes even prompting tangible rewards and and making it really much more highly reinforcing than than being on, on, on the computer device. And remember, the brains are still forming. So there's a neurobiological reason why they can't inhibit the mm-hmm. response of something that's generating so much reinforcement, right? Which is all of the media that they're that they're being exposed to. Yeah. So, how do you compete with that? Is I think the challenge of the new era for for parents and for for scientists working with uh, children. So, everyone listening, I would imagine lots of parents. I think there are lots of parents listening to this show. If they're, I guess, maybe neurocurious, <laughs> how do they find out about your work? Yeah, so there's um, great websites, my website, which links to other websites about neuropsychology. You can type in my name, find out what we do. And we'll put that link in the episode description. Oh, great, great. Uh, but, But if you're curious about it, you know, I would start with somebody who works with the brain, whether it's a psychologist, try to find your local neuropsychologist, convince us to do talks in your community or, you know, log on to it. There's so many evidence-based techniques, behavioral training, behavior management training that works wonders as parents. It's just something that's not intuitive that I think parents would benefit so much in, in, in learning about. Dr. Sejal Vias is the founder and president of the Center for Cognition, Emotion, and Behavior. Sounds like a, a Dr. Evil Lair in a volcano, but you do good work. <laughs> I hope not. But, you know, cognition, emotion, and behavior, you can't have any of those without the other. And so that's what neuropsychologists work on, brain-behavior relationships. And I wanted to capture that in the title. I I recognized shortly thereafter the title is too long. (laughs) I like it, though. I like it, though. I'd make an acronym, but it's (laughs) (laughs) K-K-E-B-U. I like that. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. And um, we hope you've learned something today, listeners. I know I have. Great. Thank you so much. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, 
visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.